Well, I have to tell you, it's a, it's a challenging Sunday um, to preach after uh, the historic vote, or at least the vote, I should say, um, at our uh, special call general conference in St. Louis. And, and I was really uh, struggling about what to uh, share today and, and what to talk about. And there's part of me that said, well, maybe we need to just talk about what the, what the vote was about and why and, and the ins and outs of that. And then another part of me said, well, we should also talk about um, what was happening on the floor as uh, individuals, both clergy and lay delegates, were coming together to discuss uh, a very complex um, uh, solution to uh, human sexuality and, and where we can come and, and have um, uh, ways to embrace our understandings together and to move forward in those things. And as I was uh, thinking about those two things, I was praying over it, and um, the Holy Spirit just said to me, well, Bob, uh, why don't you just um, preach the scriptures and uh, preach about God? And, uh, and I thought, well, hey, that's a novel idea. I think maybe I'll do that this week. And um, so I, I hope and I pray that as we uh, venture together today that, um, that uh, we understand that the Holy Spirit does lead, the Holy Spirit does help promote, the Holy Spirit does move forward in what we talk about and, and where we are. So today, I wanna bring you um, a message about the church in Rome. And I thought we would start there in, in Romans chapter five. And, and there's a couple of things we need to know about. What's, Rome, is, uh, Rome is a very difficult place for new Christians. Rome is a difficult place uh, with community in general. You have um, individuals who uh, worship multitudes or plethoras of gods. You have individuals who are new followers of Jesus that are Jews. And you have other Jews that aren't sure about Jesus as Messiah. And, and you've got also this other group called Gentiles. And a Gentile is an individual that um, wasn't a Jew. And uh, so anybody who thought differently, acted differently, worshiped differently uh, was considered a Gentile. And so Paul has a problem here. Uh, Paul is dealing with a church that's divided. And uh, Paul is trying to use his love of God and his love uh, for this newfound faith that he has in Jesus Christ to give some um, guidance to this church in Rome. So on one hand, we have a group of uh, new Christians, new followers of Jesus uh, that are Jews that are saying that we believe Jesus is the Messiah. We're Jews, but now we follow Jesus, and we believe he is the anointed one, the one that God has talked to us about through all of these centuries and beyond. And all of a sudden, you also have this other group that are Gentiles that are living within Rome, and more importantly now, now that Jesus' ministry is, is becoming public and, and uh, after his crucifixion and people are hearing the story of Jesus, uh, we find out that many are traveling to Rome. So, so now Gentiles who aren't Jews are saying, well, wait a minute, Jesus is our Messiah, and he's our Messiah too. And, and so you have Jews who, who love God and, and um, who, who uh, were doing their best to follow Jesus now seem to be at odds against people that aren't Jews, but people who love God and who are trying to come into the midst of this new plan. And, and they're looking at each other saying, how in the world are we gonna be a church? How are we gonna come together? And how are we gonna do this? Now, listen, there's a lot of biblical material that, that substantiates that, that the Jews were expecting a Messiah. And there's a lot of biblical material uh, that substantiates also that, that Jesus Christ, uh, that God came in the world for the world, not just one group of people. So here's how Paul responds. He, he brings them in and he sends this letter and he responds this way to that question. Can both of these individuals who are on separate ends of the spectrum, who say Jesus is their Messiah, can they really proclaim that and can we somehow be a church? Here's what Paul says. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the 
ungodly. Say the word ungodly, ungodly. Say it, ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. A righteous person would be someone who's got it all together, uh, someone who um, uh, never makes mistakes, never, never sins. No, you know, very rarely will anybody die for a righteous man, though. For a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. Listen closely. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul continues to write, since we now have been justified by his blood, so the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, Jesus' righteousness now is something that we can attain, that justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him, through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Do you see that the common point that Paul says is, we have these differences, we have these vast things, we're trying to kind of size each other up and see you know, who, who is more holy than the other, but he says it doesn't matter because Christ died for all of us. And he says, and that we now can come together through Jesus who is the one who reconciles all things unto him. If you've ever wondered why a, a nice person like Jesus would ever be crucified, I think he just kind of, it's writings like this that Paul talks about when, when he talks about what Jesus was for. In fact, uh, a lot of people say that Jesus did not get crucified because he died for the right people. He actually got crucified because he died for the ungodly. He died for the wrong crowd. So those who, who thought that they were saved thought the other group could not be saved, but yet the scriptures tell us that Jesus died for all. There's something about a, a, a church that when you begin, you, you're on a journey and you start thinking about things like, um, I'm here because uh, basically I'm a good person and, and spiritually I'm kind of growing and learning and, and dealing with things with, like with that. And that's why Jesus loves me because I've responded well to Jesus. And that's exactly what the people in Rome felt. That's what they were thinking in the midst of that. They were saying that I, I'm a child of Israel. I've been a child of Israel all of my life. I've been nurtured in the scriptures all of my life. I've tried carefully to obey the law. And these Gentiles who have oppressed our people who are not following the law, why in the world are they saying that Jesus is their Messiah? Do you see the struggle Paul's in the midst of? Do you see where the church of Rome is at this point in history? Do we understand that as Christians we wrestle with this all the time? And it's our struggle that we have. Paul says, remember, Christ saves sinners who say that, that I don't know a lot about scriptures. Christ saves people who say, I don't know how to keep a law. Christ saves people who say that I'm not sure what it means to follow fully this man named Jesus Christ. The scripture says that Christ died for those who feel that their slate is clean and, and that, that their opinions are politically correct. Christ died for all. And that's a significant part that we need to hold on to. John Wesley, the, the founder of the Methodist movement, Wesley preached this sermon, Romans 5. He preached out of that text at a little church in England. And when he finished, he was escorted out of the door and told he could never come back. He was kicked out of the church. 
because he preached a sermon of love with Romans chapter five. Uh, Wesley wrote in his journal, he was notorious for having journals and he wrote about all of his experiences and Wesley wrote these words in his journal that same night that he was kicked out of the church. He said, there's perhaps no more repugnant passage in all of scripture, particularly for a self-righteous smug church than Romans chapter five. Truly came home to me years ago. Uh, I was in my first full-time appointment. I served as a student local pastor in seminary and then had my first appointment at St. Luke's in Windermere, St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Windermere. I was there two years as an associate pastor. And um, this, this Romans 5 passage really came clear to me. I was up in the attic. That's what they call the youth room. It's a really cool place. I was up in the attic, and uh, uh, Mike Crawford was our youth director at that time. Mike was an amazing, amazing youth leader, and uh, he's now um, a community liaison and church community liaison at Florida Southern College. But Mike was leading a, a, a message with the students, and he was using Romans chapter 5, and, and he read those, those same words, and, and Mike just kind of put that out there. He said, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, you might die for a really, really good person, but he, but he shows his love for us in that he died only for bad persons, he who knew no sin became sin for our sakes. So Mike read that passage. And then he looked out at the kids. There were hundreds of kids there, and he said, uh, students there, and he said, he said, I need your help. He said, um, in fact, I, I, want, I want your help with something we're gonna do on stage, a, a little skit. He said, over here to my right is, is the most holy and righteous that one can be. Over here to my left is the most unholy and unrighteous one can be. This is a really good person. This is a really bad person. And he said, so it's a continuum, so from really good to really bad in this whole continuum here. He said, I'm gonna call your name, and I want you to come when I call your name, and I want you to find your place on this continuum where you are. So the first name he calls out, he says, I'm looking for Mother Teresa of Calcutta, India. And he says, you over there. The young lady walks up and walks over and she stands far to the right. He says, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., you're in the house, right? Oh, there you are over there. Sir, uh, Dr. King, come up here. So a student comes up as Dr. King Jr. and stands over here to the right. He says, Genghis Khan. I'm looking for Genghis, oh, there's Genghis Khan. Why don't you come up over here, sir, and take your place? And Genghis Khan walks all the way to the left. He says, uh, how about Joseph Stalin? Jo yeah, yeah, Joseph Stalin, right here. Joseph Stalin, come, come up. And a male student comes up and stands here on the left. He says, Adolf Hitler, are you in the house? Oh, there you are, Adolf. Uh, come on up here. And Adolf Hitler goes to the left. And so he starts calling these students up, and he gets toward the end, and he says, all right, I'm looking for John Wesley. Is John Wesley in the house? And uh, he says, you right there, sir, you're John Wesley. Come on up. And John Wesley comes up, and he's hanging out with Mother Teresa and Dr. King and all the good people. And he says, you know what? He says, you, you see all these? There's about a dozen students up there all over this continuum. He says, um, I need one more person, Jesus Christ. Will Jesus come forward? You, sir, right there, come forward. And so Jesus walks up. And what does Jesus do? Jesus walks over and he's hanging out over here with Dr. King Jr. and John Wesley and Mother Teresa of Calcutta and all the good people. And Mike stops for a minute and he looks and he says, is everybody, you like this? You got all the bad people over there. You got all the good people over here. Do you, do you like what you see? The kids are like, yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, we base this. And he stops for a second. He looks right at him. He says, what are they teaching you guys in school? Do you not get it? Do you not understand? He said, wait a minute. He says, let's, let's read this again. And so he starts reading again. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for all of us. And he talked about Jesus died for the ungodly. Nobody would die for a good person. Nobody, but Jesus, and he's, and he's talking about how Jesus died for the ungodly. And, and all of a sudden, I watched this kid that was Jesus up here. He's going. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he's over here hanging out with Joseph Stalin, 
Genghis Khan, Adolf Hitler, and every other bad person you can think of. And Mike looked at these uh, students and he said this. He said, now, he said, Do you, are you getting it? And he says, now, which of you students tomorrow are gonna go into your schools and you're gonna start telling people about the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ? And he said, when the band starts playing, he said, I want you to make your way to the front and, I, and, and we'll pray for you. And I, swear, I, I tell you, um, when the band started playing, dozens of students made their way to the front and they got prayed over. You see, for me, uh, when, we, when we look at things like this, it, it's not uh, only to love Jesus. You know, we, we, we hear people, I love Jesus. Well, I love Jesus. Well, great, I know you love Jesus. But do you love other people like Jesus does? Do you love other people like Jesus loves you? It's one thing to say I love Jesus, but, but do you love as Jesus loves? And that's the part I think that we need to really look at. For 10 chapters after Romans 5, uh, Paul, Paul is, is really unpacking this for us in this church of Rome. And then all of a sudden he gets in ch- uh, about 10 chapters later and he drops the hammer. Paul does that. He just drop, boom, the hammer drops. And Paul begins to say, he says, you know, Jesus Christ died for us sinners. He died for the ungodly. 10 chapters later, he then changes the language and he says, but it's your job to welcome others the same way that Jesus dared to welcome you. Are you connecting with what Paul's message is? Are we seeing and sensing what the message is for the church, capital C? When, uh, when I was working outside of the church before I answered my call to ministry, I was in the private industry and, and, and I loved it. My company, they were like really in tune with me. They surrounded me with people that were just like me. People that were, were you know, quiet. Uh, people that, <laughs> wow, come on, really? No. Uh, people that were goal-driven, people that, that you know, were, wanted to, to, you know, succeed and things like that, and, and, and that's what they did. And now, granted, there were people with different genders and different ethnicities there, but they surrounded people just like me. And, 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 and it wasn't until 1997, after uh, I finished seminary and had that first full-time appointment and was placed at St. Luke's in Windermere, that I began to find out that there's a whole different life out there than hanging out with people just like you. And I began to recognize in my very early part of ministry that um, we're called to be with people whoever Jesus drags in the door. And whether we dress like they or we, that we talk like they or look like they or whatever the case is, that, that whoever God drags in through the doors of the church or drags us in front of in, in, the, in the midst of the public and out in the world, we're to associate and love people like that. And that's one of the greatest char- uh, challenges in the church because we are so caught up in wanting to wrestle with that because we so quickly want the church to look like us when God says the church is the all. One of the great challenges of being a disciple of Jesus is being able to disciple with the people that Jesus saves and to reach into places we've never imagined and to befriend people we never thought we would ever know and to love them as Christ loves us. Think about an issue in, in your mind for a minute. Think about an issue that, that you were totally convicted with, an issue that, that no matter what anybody said, did, or tried, or forced, or whatever, that you would ever change your mind on. Think of what that issue is right now. Do you know what that issue is? Have you thought about it? 
So I want you to think about, okay, I'm, I'm firm, I'm on this, and, and nobody's going to ever change my mind on it. This is where I stand, I'm firm on this, and I'm not gonna negotiate. Now for a second, think about somebody who's in your family who has a difference of opinion. How do you reconcile that? Do you like kick them out? Or do you find a way to, to, to live together a way to serve together, a way to love together. You may not change your mind, you may not change their mind, but, but yet you find a way. You find a way to be together. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You might be willing to sacrifice for a really good person, but we got the kind of God that loves bad persons. God loves all people, and we're all bad. I served at United Methodist Church a few years ago and I started out um, when I got on the staff after the appointment and I always have a practice of bringing staff in one at a time and, and, and asking their goals and aspirations and things like that, I ask questions. And, and I also brought in lay leadership and I asked them. And I always have a slew of questions to ask and one of the questions that I ask is, what is it that we could be doing better? And I remember at this church uh, that I'm sharing with about right now is I, I invited in three uh, of our male um, lay leadership folks are probably in their uh, early 30s, low 40s, and I brought them in separately and began to talk with them, and, and as I asked that question, what can we do better? Well, the first two guys that I met, uh, separately, they both said the same thing. Well, we think that we can have better outreach to the LBGTQ community, and that we can be more loving to people other than ourselves that, that, that aren't straight, that we, can, that we can love all people. And I, I mean, my radar went up and I said, well, you know, gosh, everything I've read about this church and, and everything that I've experienced so far, I don't get that feeling. And they're like, yeah, but we, we feel like there's still some hidden tension and, and we're not comfortable with that. So, so we think we can do better. And I said, okay. So I made some notes with that. And then the third person I met with was a, was a lawyer. And, um, and as I was talking to this person who's a lawyer, I, I asked the same question, what can we do better? And, and he looked at me and he said, you know, we're, we're, we're really missing out. We're, we're not reaching out to all the people, especially the ones in our LBGTQ community. And I scratched my head and I said, did you guys rehearse this or something? Because you're all three telling me the same thing. And, and I've never been in a leadership meeting with, with laity where three people, boom, boom, boom. And they're like, no, we didn't talk. We didn't compare notes. We didn't debrief or anything. You asked a question and we're, and I said, well, why is this so important to you? I mean, are, are you gay or, you know, is there someone in your family that's gay? Do you, do you have friends that are gay? Why, why is this really important to you? And he looked at me and he went, uh, Jesus? A lawyer that could only say two words. Uh, Jesus. But yet, the most profound words. Uh, Jesus. That's why I believe this, he said. And I said, the interview's over, thank you, and you've given me what I need, and, and let, we'll move on. So, so maybe, maybe we as a church, capital C, and, and even here locally as St. Paul, maybe we come to church to be reminded what a big God we've really got, and more importantly, how, how large the expanse of the kingdom of God really is. And we're told to welcome one another just as God condescended to welcome us. It's a message that, that, that I believe that the church needs to continue to hear and to keep hearing. And sometimes the strangest person that you'll ever meet, guess what, is the person sitting next to you in the pew or the chair, not your spouse. But we meet some of the strangest people in churches. And you know why? Because we're all seeking the same thing. 
we're seeking a deeper relationship with the God who created us, the God who redeemed us, the God who reconciles us, and the God who restores us. We've just had a, a vote in the United Methodist Church, our general conference voted to uh, uh, accept the traditional uh, church plan along with a, about a half dozen of other amendments. And, and in a nutshell, it, it does nothing to eliminate the language that our gay brothers and sisters find to be hurtful, language that some use as a weapon against them to say that because they're gay, God can't love you, God can't accept you, very hurtful things. And, and we, didn't, we didn't pass anything to remove that kind of language, to say we, we affirm that you are loved. It also reinforces what our current church discipline says and has said for, for many years that, that um, United Methodist pastors cannot perform same-gender marriages. And, and it also uh, affirmed that uh, we can't uh, ordain openly gay persons or license openly gay persons for pastoral ministry. And, and, and I have a lot of my brothers and sisters that I know are gay that are serving. They just haven't told anybody. And they're very effective clergy and they love their congregations, and they love God, and they're, they're doing their best, and yet um, we've, we've drawn some lines with that, so they've upheld these things. And, and several of the amendments of the traditional plan, um, they had a declaratory decision which said that likely they might be unconstitutional. So uh, all of this is being referred to the United Methodist Judicial Council. And the Judicial Council will render a decision in April of this year to let us know which parts of the traditional plan will stand and which parts will have to be further, as we say in Methodism, perfected so that they are not unconstitutional. But as I just um, said, we, we had a vote in the United Methodist Church, but yet the most important vote that I think we've ever taken was a couple thousand years ago on a Friday, and we voted for Barabbas. And as we sent to Jesus to the cross, and as Jesus died on the cross, that same God that we voted against is the same God who voted for us to save us, to give us life, and to restore us into the kingdom. You see, we need to be reminded that bringing people into the kingdom of God is the most important thing. It's not our political affiliations, it's not our love of nation, it's not our sexuality, it's not our ethnicity, it's bringing people into the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus charges us to do. And he says it's non-negotiable that as a Christian, under obedience, we are called to bring all people into the kingdom of God. And one of the things I love about St. Paul is, is that we, we see that. I know that we have differences in, in, in interpretations of scriptures and all that, but what I love about the beauty of this church is we can live in that tension. We can live in struggling through that. And from what I can see as your pastor, we are an accepting church. We, we do welcome all people. And that's what I love about this body. And someone asked me the other day, what will St. Paul do? And folks, we're gonna continue to be the church. We're gonna continue to love God. We're gonna continue to, to welcome any person who comes here to this church. Uh, Pastor Pam and I will uphold the discipline of the church because by our right of ordination, we're required to do that. But we will not have barriers as far as who can come in our doors and who can't. We, we serve together, we've loved together, we've taken sacrament together, we've done studies together all before this vote last week. Nothing's changing there. The love that we have remains. And it's very important that you hear that from me, your pastor. The love that we have remains. Several years ago, my family was in crisis. We received a phone call that 
um, our oldest daughter had been carjacked at gunpoint. A uh, young guy had taken a 45 caliber semi-automatic stainless steel pistol and put it in her nose and said, give me your keys or I'm going to pull the trigger. And of course, she surrendered the keys and he ran off with a car. And you, know, you tell that story, and I've told you that story before on a different occasion, but what gets me is you, know, you, you, you tell a story like that and, and I know that people have the greatest of intentions. And it's like, you know, wow, you know, how did you feel? And, and uh, is she okay? I mean, these are all caring and, and concerning kind of questions. And, um, but then there's always that one thing about, you know, didn't you want to just go grab a gun and find that punk and put it in his face and threaten to pull the trigger on him too? I mean, you, you hear those kinds of responses that come back. And someone asked me one time, and, and I got really tired of that question, and that question was, why didn't you do something about it? Why didn't you go physically go find that guy that did that? Does it not matter to you at all that he's still out there? And folks, I, you know, I, I was so, the word starts with a P, okay? And it's not prophecy. <laughs> and I just said, darn it, no. I'm a Christian. And I can't do that. You see, Jesus calls us to love. And even when we don't understand it, we are reminded that he died even for the ungodly. The ungodly. And what we can learn as human beings and what we can learn as Christians is that wrestling with Scripture is not an easy thing. That how we read Scripture, how we interpret Scripture, how we put context into Scripture will always differ amongst us. But we have to maintain the, the, the love between us to know that my brother or sister might see things differently than me, I might see things differently than them, but in Christ we find that unity. In Christ we're together. So this is not a battle between traditionalists and progressives. This is about a church that continues to struggle and strive for how is God at work in the community of the world. And we'll continue to struggle with this. We'll struggle with it. But in the meantime, Paul says, come together, be the church.